Second Peter chapter three, verse, verse 18, we're looking at the question, what is so glorious about Jesus? Remember, this is uh, how Peter's book is going to end here. Second Peter ends with this idea uh, of, of making much of Christ, giving glory to Christ. So we're answering the question, what would make it so important that, that Peter, remember Peter knew he was about to die, uh, that Peter uh, would end his life, his final words, whether he knew it or not, or that God would have Peter's final words be this idea in Second Peter 3.18, to him be glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. To say that Jesus Christ, our Lord, our Savior, we're to give glory to him. So if we're supposed to do that, You can't just make up glory. Glory is not just something that we say, oh, glory to Jesus. Like there's got to be content behind what it is that makes Jesus so glorious. What it is that would captivate us and cause us to hopefully not just end our lives with that cry, but to have 2 Peter 3.18 be the very driving force behind every day of our life. If, if, If we're going to, with our lives, give glory to Jesus... Then, then in our hearts, we have to understand just how glorious Christ is. What is the fuel for that glory? What is the content biblically behind what it is that makes Jesus so glorious? And so that's what we've been working through. Let's so remind ourselves that what we're doing is just digging deeper into 2 Peter 3.18. So let's stand in the honor of reading God's word. We'll read this verse to remind us. This is what we're sort of mining uh, and the jumping off point for what we're doing. We didn't just decide, hey, let's have a series about Jesus. Uh, We read this and said, all right, let's see what Peter's talking about when he talks about how great Christ is. So 2 Peter 3.18. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Let's pray. Father, as we come and gather together today and have have sung praises to you, have have talked about uh, your glory, and we've come here to to praise and glorify, uh, Father, you and your Son and the Spirit. And so, God, I pray uh, that you would help us to see what it is that is so glorious about uh, your Son, Jesus Christ, that we would see why we are to, to give glory to him. Uh, both now and to the day of eternity. So, Father, fill up our hearts and our minds with what is just so glorious about Jesus. We, Father, may already think that Jesus is great, but, God, I pray that you would fill us with the weightiness, the the deep value uh, of just how great of a Savior we have. It is in Christ's name uh, that we pray. Amen. All right, so... Uh, looking at Second Peter chapter three verse eighteen, uh, we've looked at the first of those three titles. That's the idea. Peter gives us three titles for Jesus. Uh, he is our Lord, our Savior, Jesus the Christ. So we're going to look at those three titles: Lord, Savior, Christ. What do those mean in the Bible? Peter's not just making those up. Those all have a lot of verses behind them, a lot of thoughts, a lot of texts. Uh, so we're going to look at some of those, not even all of those, for all those things. We looked at the first one with uh, with the word Lord. We saw. 
the word Lord itself is, is one packed with meaning. It, it's the name that, I mean, to think of just the, the heavy weight just behind the word Lord, it's the word they chose to represent the name of God. When they said the name of God was too holy to say, you can't say Yahweh. Uh, so when it says that in the Hebrew, what, what word do you replace that with to, to still make it a grand and glorious word? And, and they chose this word Lord, that that is, that is who our God is. He is our Lord. And the idea behind Lord being uh, that someone is your owner, your master, uh, the, the one whose will you follow in life, what they say you do. That's the idea when you say that, that Jesus is Lord. He's the Lord of your life. He's the one you listen to, the one that commands you, not your own heart, not your own desires, not these idols that we make up and, and worship, not these other things we put in the place of God that we serve. It is uh, the Lord uh, Jesus Christ. Uh, he is Lord of our uh, life. But we saw that it is also uh, this battle cry that, that Jesus is Lord is a declaration of war, uh, that now this world has a new Lord. Uh, the old one sits bound while his kingdom is being robbed. And so we say it with confidence. Jesus is uh, Lord, but he's not just Lord. If you want, well, if you can say that, not just Lord, right? We just said it's the name of God and it means owner and master of all that you do, but he's not just Lord here in Second Peter. He doesn't say to our Lord Jesus. He says to our Lord and Savior. So that's what we're going to look at next, that Jesus is the Savior. So what is so great about Jesus as Savior? What does that mean? And what are the glories, the praises, the, the honor, the weight behind that word uh, Savior? Uh, well, to understand what it is that is so amazing about Jesus being our Savior, we're going to look at Scripture and see what Scripture has to say about that. And the first place we see uh, Jesus described as Savior is in Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2. So we all, we all know what's uh, going on here. What's, what's going to be funny, you're going to see this is Luke chapter 2. We're going to begin in verse 10, go through verse 11. Uh, but just the context, uh, if you'll remember, this is the night of Jesus' birth. It's the, the story of, of the shepherds there out keeping watch over their flocks by night. But I want you to notice the great parallel between 2 Peter 3.18 uh, and Luke 2.11. Uh, You're going to see both of those or all three of those titles applied to Jesus here for the first time. Uh, and then you're going to see that this is a time of great, of great glory. So you've got these shepherds out keeping watch over their flocks. All of a sudden, the glory, right? The glory of the Lord shines around them. And what are they? They are, this is the one time the King James is better than every other translation, right? They are sore afraid, right? If ever there was a time where you go, man, that's a great way to picture it. They're very afraid, sore afraid. And then what does the angel say to them? Look at Luke chapter 2, verse 10. And the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Why? For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. So he says, the, the angels come, the hosts, they declare, the angel of the Lord says, uh, don't be afraid. I've got good news for you, good news for you, for, for all the people. And what is the good news? 
What's the good news? Today, a Savior has been born who is Christ, who is the Lord. There are, again, all those three titles, Jesus, uh, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is the first time those are all sort of laid out there together. Uh, and, then, and then it comes, next is that glorious part that comes after that. So this child's going to be born. He's going to be the Savior. He's, he's Christ, the Lord. And then look at verses 13 and 14. Look what happens right after that news is announced. The Savior's coming, Christ the Lord, uh, verses 13 and 14. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. So Jesus is announced, the Savior is going to come. So the very first times we hear about Jesus even coming is the idea that he, what is he coming to do? He is coming to be the Savior. He is Christ the Lord. And when that's announced, the whole host of heaven, can you imagine? I mean, one angel would be enough. And I bet they're like, this is the scariest my life will ever be. And then God was like taking it up to an 11 uh, because all of a sudden the whole sky is filled with these angels and they like start singing. Uh, and they were like, nope, now. I'm, if I was sore afraid then, I don't know what I am now. Uh, I am sore, sore afraid. Uh, but they, this glory of the Lord is proclaimed because the Savior is coming. So Jesus is coming. He's coming to save. He's going to be the Savior, not just of the Jewish people, but the Savior of the world. Uh, in fact, Jesus then goes on in his life. He speaks of himself in this way. John chapter 3, uh, verse 17, Jesus tells us this is what he's come to do. Uh, he says, we know, we know John three sixteen, but John three seventeen, the verse right after it says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. So Jesus' mission is when he says, not one of condemnation, but of salvation. He is a savior. He is the savior. And that's what he came to do. God sent Jesus to come and save. But that all begs the question, right? And what question does it beg? What is he saving us from? Right? Because if, if I were to look at it you right now, or we to look at people in the world, people aren't running around going, save me, right? Save me. And we're like, okay, let's tell you about Jesus. Right? So what is it that we are being saved from? What is it that you and I need a savior for? That's an important question. Because the modern world seems to think that we have little need for a savior. The world says that we are all basically good people. And even if we're not basically good, we could just do a little bit more good in your life. Recycle two more plastic cans. I don't know. Uh, whatever. Uh, recycle a little bit more. Do, do anything. Do a little bit more. Erase your carbon footprint. Whatever it's got to be. Right? Any wrongs. And then, you know, all of us will be fine, right? And in the end, it doesn't even really matter. Because what? Because God, God loves us all anyway. So even if we're not good, and even if we didn't fix all the bad that we had done, when we die, God's going to be like, okay, I love you all anyway. Uh, that's kind of the idea. So when, if that's the picture that the world's painting, the question is, well, what do we need to be saved for? What do, we, what do we need a savior if everything is basically, if I'm basically fine, and even if I'm not fine, if everything's basically fine between me and God, what do I need to be saved from? 
You know, if someone's in a pool and they're swimming, you just jump in and say, I got you, and start trying to pull them out of the pool. If you do, they will probably punch and kick you, one, because you're jumping on them in the water. But why? Because they don't need a rescue, right? There's nothing, they're, not, they're fine there. And that's kind of the way the world is depicting us, as if everything is fine with us. So what do we need a Savior for? And so what happens is Jesus' Savior basically gets replaced with Jesus as like some form of like life coach, maybe? He's just this great life coach that's it's, going to really be like, he's almost more of a motivator. We're, 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 the only thing really Jesus saves us from is, is maybe saving you from your negative thoughts about yourself. Like in the end, that's what he just ends up doing. Just basically telling you how great you are. Like that's what his salvation is. But the Bible is clear that both Jesus is saving us and what it is that he is saving us from. Because the Bible doesn't just say that Jesus is Savior. The Bible also explicitly and in multiple ways and multiple things tells us what it is that Jesus is saving us from. So what is Jesus Jesus saving us from? And the irony of it is that he's saving us from all the things that I mentioned earlier being wrong. So Jesus is coming to save us. Why? Because we, precisely because we are not all basically good. Jesus is coming to save us because we cannot fix ourselves. Because an enemy has hunted us down, has chained us, enslaved us, killed us, deadened our hearts to the things of God to the point that we can't and won't fix anything. If anything, we run further and further from God. So we're not good. We can't fix ourselves. But even, even, like I said, but then that gets to the last one, right? Even if we're sinners, being sinners isn't a problem, right? Because surely if anyone knows that you're supposed to hate the sin but love the sinner, it's God, right? Jesus comes to show us that what awaits us is not the unending eternal love of God, but the wrath of God poured out on all who've been living in rebellion to him, who have lived lives of rebellion against, like we saw last week, the Lord, the one who is Lord over everyone. It's just as Christians, we, we submit to his lordship. We rec- we're not making him Lord. He is Lord. We're just going, yeah, yeah, you are, and we're not. And, and we humbly submit to your, to your lordship. Jesus is coming to show us that, that we need to be saved from the wrath of God and that, that only, that in the end, only he can do that. So we're not basically good. We can't fix ourselves. Things are not great between us and God. The only one who can change all of those things, the only one who can save us from that reality is Jesus Christ. So to understand what is so glorious about this Savior, we need to understand our problems, those problems that we just talked about, and we need to understand what it is that our Savior is going to do. So as we talk about Jesus' Savior, which was intended to be one week, is now spread into three, I'm sorry, possibly four. How do you truncate the idea of Jesus' Savior, right? You start looking at these passages, you go, that's so good. And the Lord is like, yeah, that's why it says glory in him, uh, our Lord and Savior. And we're going to see it's, what Jesus does for us is so glorious. And if we'll get a picture of what that is in these, in these coming weeks, we'll see the great glory of our Savior. A word that sometimes, I think, if we're honest, flippantly comes off our lips. Jesus is the Savior of the world. And it almost just becomes a title without any real meaning behind it. We're going to see the weight behind that. We're going to see the dead weight of sin and wrath and slavery. We're going to see what makes that 
title, Savior of the World. So amazing. Uh, and we're going to see it from Scripture. I'm not going to make up some cute little story. We're going to see it. It's all in the text that, that the Savior of the world is an amazing thing. So the, we're going to begin this week by looking at how Jesus saves us from our sins. Okay, so uh, we're looking at Jesus' Savior. We mentioned some of those things. The first one that we're all basically good. No, we're not all basically good. We are fallen, sinful people. Uh, All of us have sinned. All of us have uh, fallen short of the glory of God. All of that stuff. We know that we are sinners. uh, And to learn that Jesus is going to come to save us from our sins, we're going to go a little bit earlier into the life of Jesus before the shepherds. Uh, We're going to go all the way back to Matthew chapter 1, where we're told of the very name of Jesus itself and how the very name of Jesus is going to show us that he is coming not just to save us, but to save us particularly from one thing, and that's our sin. Okay, so let's go back to Matthew chapter 1. You know the scene. Uh, Mary and, and Joseph are engaged. They're betrothed. They're affianced. Uh, They're going to be married. Uh, That's what's going on there. But there's one problem, right? The timing is off. The timing is off in this way. They haven't married yet. And yet Mary is pregnant. And Joseph may just be a dumb old carpenter, right? But he knows if he has not been with Mary and Mary is pregnant, then, then the math has gotten backwards in their equation. And so Joseph... Uh, Joseph, being a just man, says he's going to divorce her quietly. And uh, I think it's funny that Mary didn't tell him about her her dream and what she's been told at this point yet. Uh, But he apparently doesn't know what the angel had told her. Uh, So uh, Joseph is about to send her away and and be quiet about it. Uh, But then what happens before he can do that? Joseph is visited in a dream this time. Uh, Joseph is visited by an angel in a dream. And what does the angel say to him? Matthew chapter 1, verses 20 and 21. Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. So he says, look, Joseph, I know you're freaking out, but Mary has not done anything wrong. She hasn't been lying to you. She hasn't deceived you. She's not cuckling you. There's not some great deception going on here. Uh, She is with child, not from someone you don't know about, except that you know that the you ain't you. Uh, She's with child from the Holy Spirit. She's going to have a son and you're going to call, I love that, and you're going to call his name. This is like, she's going to have a son, and this is what you're going to, so he's, the angel's already assuming, you're not going anywhere, Joseph. That's both interesting in that it's a command, but also it's a highlight into the heart of Joseph. Joseph, who had already shown us, he was going to divorce her quietly and not make a big scene about it. He's already seen to be a just man, a righteous man, good man. Uh, and he says, look, this is what's happening. And he assumes that when I tell you what's happening, you'll stay with her, and this is the name you'll give the child. You shall call his name uh, Jesus. But why? He says, because he is going to save his people from their sins. Now, we're going to do a fun thing, which I think is immensely fun and no one else does. We're going to 
do a wordplay thing here. Uh, this is what we need to understand about the name of Jesus, because the truth is a lot of us don't even know where the name of Jesus comes from or how we got it or, or why we say it. The name Jesus, as Clay will tell you, uh, is actually the Latin version of the Greek word that we find in our Greek New Testaments. The Greek word in the New Testament is Iesu. Jesus, uh, Jesus Christu. I mean, that's what you're going to see in the Greek. That's the Greek name. Uh, and that's actually the Greek version of the Aramaic slash Hebrew name, which would have been Yeshua. Or the English version of Yeshua is, if you're reading your Old Testament, is what? Joshua. Okay. So that's, that's sort of the transition of how we get to the name Jesus as we say it. Because if you, if you do ever learn Greek and you're reading through your Bibles and you get to the name of Jesus and you say Jesus and you're going, what, where's the Jesus? Uh, it's, it's actually from the, the Latin, which comes from the Greek, which comes from the Aramaic or Hebrew. Uh, in fact, in the New Testament, every other time that you see the name Jesus uh, or the name Jesus in your Bibles, it will actually translate it Joshua. Uh, so there are other references in your Bible to other Joshua's, other Jesus's, so to speak, uh, other people with that name. And, and, and so that's what it, it translates it, translated as Joshua. That, that's why I laugh when, when people are like, I can't believe they named their baby, you know, Jesus. Uh, I find that so weird. And they're like, that's so weird. Come here, Joshua. And I'm like, <gasps> you know, like, uh, you know, I just laugh anyway. Uh, but why bring that up? Why talk about that? Not so, not so you can have, you know, be the fun guy at parties bringing that up all the time. Uh, well, you actually know where the name Jesus came from. Uh, that's Clay's job. Don't take it from him. Uh, so why, why bring it up? It's not to say, it, one, it's, it's not to say, make you say, well, then why do we call him Jesus in the first place? You know, thanks, Latin. Let's call him by his actual name and, and say, from now on, we're going to call him Yeshua or, or anything like that. I'm not saying you have to call him Jesus or Yeshua or Joshua or any of that. Uh, it, 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 it does make me laugh for other reasons. People are saying like, no, you have to pray and you have to say the name Jesus uh, as if that name, the Latin version of the Greek name, which is the version of the Hebrew name, like all of a sudden that's the one that's important. Um, but that's a, that's a side point. Why bring it up? It's because the Bible tells us that the name is important here. The name is important, but not just because it's some sort of talisman of a name that we've got to say it right. Notice what the angel says. You will call his name this. You'll call his name Jesus. Why? Why are you going to choose this name? Why did we choose this name? He says, because, so the name of the child and the reason for that specific name is important. You'll name him Jesus. You'll name him Joshua. You'll name him this. Why? Because he will save his people from their sins. And when you go back, the name, that's, the name Joshua uh, is a combination of two words. One, the word we looked at a few weeks ago, Yahweh, uh, and then the Hebrew word for save. So in other words, the name Jesus just basically means God saves. Yahweh saves. And so he says, you're going to name this child Yahweh saves. You're going to name him the Lord saves. Why? Because that's what he is coming to do. This child is coming to save his people from their sins. Again, the problem is that you and I are not basically good. 
But the truth is, even if we were basically good, we'd still have a great chasm of a problem. Because we wouldn't be completely good. And that's what God is. That's what God requires. Holiness, perfection, righteousness. And we would still have sin. Even if we were basically good, a soup that basically has no flies in it is not a great soup. And so the idea that you and I can be basically good and everything be okay between us and God is something that we do not assume in any other situation, right? We know something's either good or it's not good. And if sin were not a problem, Jesus would not have been sent to save us from them. You don't rescue someone who isn't in trouble. So God has sent his son to rescue us from a real problem. God who who understands the weightiness and the future for those who sin and who have sin in them and has stained them and corrupted them and killed them. God who knows that better than you and I do is the one who says, I'm going to send my son to save them from that. You and I cannot, cannot talk down You know, we can't devalue sin. God who knows the danger of sin is the one who sends his son to save the world from sin. The idea that you and I now, all we do now, what the world seems to do in their answer to sin is just make sin not bad or just make sins not sins. Well, that's that's not really a sin and that's not a sin. I know the Bible says it is, but it's not anymore and that's not a sin anymore and that's not a sin anymore. All these things, they're not, well then, then God's up there going, man, I wish I'd have understood sin as good as you guys. Because Jesus is like, I'd have stayed here and missed a lot, right? I'd have just stayed up here in the glory of the Lord. I don't know if you've read about what happened that last week of my life. It wasn't great uh, in terms of, of pain and suffering. Uh, so, yeah. So why is the son sent here? Why does he empty himself and come? Because he is to save us from our sins. Because sin is a problem so if we're looking at the problem of sin we're going to recognize that sin is such a problem that the only thing that can happen is you and i need to be saved from it now that's that's what we need to understand the only thing that can fix our sin is we have to be saved from our sin we don't need to be encouraged Uh, in our fight against sin we don't need to be instructed in the best ways to deal with our sin like that's not what we don't get here and say okay guys i know that we've probably sinned this week so here's some encouraging things that are going to help us become good people and here's some instructions for maybe doing this and you won't like there's nothing you and i can do in ourselves to save us in fact listen to how the bible describes our situation This is when God is explaining to us just how dangerous sin is and what it's done. Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. He's going to start out, God's going to come out swinging in the problem of our sin. And what does he say? And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. So we are dead in our sins. What has our sins done? Our sins have killed us. We are dead. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passion of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We dead. That's the hopelessness, right? 
That's the helplessness of where we're at. We don't need help. We're helpless. We don't need someone to give us a ray of hope. We are hopeless. We need to be saved because in our situation, what are we? We are dead men and dead women. And you don't go up to a dead person and start telling them how to heal themselves. You know, like at a funeral, no one walks up and says, I bet no one's told them what to do. And I bet no one went up and said, hey, breathe. Hey, you, you know, it's your heart. It was your heart that got you. Did you know that? Why do we not do that? Because they are dead. And God says that's the way we are in our, in our lives, that we are dead in our sin. And what's funny is it somehow gets worse than dead. Because what does he say? How can it get worse than it? Look at what he says in verse 2. We're dead, but what? We're dead and then in, in which we once walked. We're like zombies spiritually. We are dead people who are still walking. But we're not walking to God. What does verse 2 say? Verse 2 says we're walking the wrong way. That we're following the course of this world. That we're following the prince of the power of the air. That before we are saved, we are in our sins. We're dead unless we go, well, maybe this dead person might wander to the Lord. He says, no, you're dead and you're walking, but you're walking away from the Lord. We're somehow getting more dead. We are dead and somehow getting more dead in our sins. It's like a man who sets his house on fire and then walks into the flames. That's what we do in our sin. And he says, this isn't just our story, right? And this isn't just the story of some people or even just of the worst. It's not like this is, and let me tell you about Hitler or something like that. This is the story, he says, for, that is true of us and the rest of mankind. This is what everyone is doing, was and is doing. So that's the state of humanity. It doesn't matter if the world gets on. You've got all these self-help speakers and these gurus. It doesn't even matter if you've got spiritual people who are using their Bibles to say this. This is the state of humanity. This is why we need to be saved and why that is our only hope. Not to fix ourselves, not to right the ship, We need to be saved because our sin has killed us and yet we continue to walk further and further into the pit of wickedness. So it's not like the Bible is painting a picture of that we're all right or we're just on the cusp of making it right and Jesus is just going to kind of give us a boost. On our own, we're not all right. We're not making it right. We're making it worse. And so that's a very real problem that's a i mean if if someone came and said hey i got bad news you're dead and you're getting more dead uh you'd be like okay take me to the doctor some of you go to the doctor when you cough for the first time you're like i coughed i'm obviously dying take me to the doctor uh or put some medicine in me do something this idea of the Lord coming and saying, look, you are dead in your trespasses and sins uh, in which you w- once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the earth. That's what we're doing. We're not innocent bystanders. We are willful participants in a world of sin. We are citizens that don't have to be encouraged to vote. 
we are citizens who don't have to be reminded to renew our driver's license. We like being citizens of sin and we get deeper and deeper into it. That's the situation that we need to be saved from. But here's the good news. That's exactly who Jesus came to save. Right? That's the great news. It's not like, so it's not like we're painting this really bad picture and you're like, oh, I think I'm getting here. And maybe Jesus only saves the people who are here. Right? Maybe Jesus only came to save the good people, which again, you don't need to save the good people because they're good people. Right? Uh, so who does he come to save? Sinners. Right? Not the righteous, but sinners. And Jesus says, that's what he came to do. So look, for example, at 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15. So we are sinful, we're sinners, we're dead in our sin. That's a problem. What are we going to do? The good news is that's exactly why Jesus came. That was his purpose. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. So you and I are sinners. That's our problem. Sinners in thought, sinners in deed. We are dead men walking. The good news is Jesus came to save sinners. That's a statement that that Paul says here, you can trust. That is a trustworthy statement that is deserving of all the churches of God to say an amen to, which is that Jesus came to save sinners. But how? How does he do that? Does Jesus just come and then declare that sin is no longer a problem? Does he come down and say, all right, I'm here and we're not going to talk about this sin thing anymore. It's not going to be an issue. All right, it's over. Are we given some sort of like heavenly pass, right? Come up over here and get your get out of hell free card or something like that. And everything's going to be okay. How does Jesus save us from our sins? Are there a few key passages, a few key themes that talk about how it is that Jesus saves us from our sin? We're going to look today at the idea of Jesus as the lamb. How does Jesus save us from our sin? Jesus is the lamb that is slain for sin, slain for our sin. This begins at the start of the gospel of John. Again, early on, you get all of these things right off the bat in each of these gospels. Luke chapter two, he's the savior, he's the Christ, he's the Lord. Matthew chapter one, this is Jesus. Why do we call him Jesus? Because he is going to save his people just like his name says. He's gonna save his people from their sins. Now, John chapter one, who is this Jesus guy, this word that's made flesh, this word who was God and was with God? How, what, what is going on here with Jesus? So that's what happened. John chapter one, you've got John the Baptist, baptizing right as you would expect there's a reason you know they don't call him john the loiterer uh, or something like that he's baptizing people and notice notice what he says when he sees jesus come up to him what does he say in john chapter 1 verse 29 the next day he saw jesus coming toward him and said behold the lamb of god who does what who takes away the sin of the world. So Jesus is going to save. He's going to save us from our sins. How? By taking away our sins. What does that mean? Is he just sort of throwing them away? Is Jesus coming and saying, oh, you've got sin here. Let me take it. Let me take that. And we're going to put them in this sort of great eternal dust bin and they'll be gone. No, he takes them away because he is 
the Lamb of God. Well, what does that mean? What does it mean that here is the Lamb that takes away sin? This is the Lamb of God who's going to take away the sin of the world. Well, that's what we're going to look at. How does Jesus save us from our sins as the lamb? Jesus is the lamb who ta- the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, what point is, is John trying to make when he says he's this lamb of God? He is pointing to Jesus as the ultimate sacrifice for sins. As we know, the, the, the Jewish nation, Old Testament, the people of God from the beginning have had a we could call it extensive law if you wanted to as you're reading through uh, your Bibles and uh, if you're doing the Bible reading challenge you're just getting to the book of Deuteronomy or actually you're about you know 14 15 chapters through the book of Deuteronomy by now uh, as you're reading uh, this book of, of Deuteronomy you're saying, we got the law and now what does God do he gives us the law again uh, and so you, it's you go man that's a that's a lot of law in fact if you go back uh, and read you're going to find 613 commands in the Old Testament, 613 commands of God. That's, that's what the, the, the Jews teach, and, and it's, it's fairly accurate. Uh, Jewish tradition numbered it 613. Now, six, when you hear 613 commands, that sounds like a lot, right? That sounds like God is, man, he's really asking a lot, 613 commands. But to see the great wisdom of God that he can that he can orient an entire nation to be a holy people in 613 commands. If you think that's a lot, go down and read your local tax code, right? Go, go, go read any legal document today and, and you will find in the most minute legal document now far more than 613 directives in how to do a whatever. The Lord can orient an entire nation in 613 commands. He can teach them what holiness looks like. So just, just think about that the next time someone's like, oh, there's too much in the Bible for us to obey it. Uh, yeah, okay. Uh, but then those laws aren't just by themselves. Those laws are attached to a sacrificial system, right? Because what happens, we break those laws just like we do today. We break laws and there are things that happen when you break the law. Well, in the Old Testament, if this is what God's holy people were supposed to be, these are the rules I give you so that you may be holy. You may be my people. And then they are not holy. They break those. And yet as God's people, what are they going to do? If God's people are holy and here they are unholy, you have these blessings coming. And as Zach's going to read, a whole lot of cursing is coming if you don't. What do you do to fix it? And if you've broken it, and so you get these sacrifices. And, and if, the, if the, the law was vast in what you must do, the, the list of sacrifices is also very vast. And so I just want to give you an example of what we're talking about when, when we talk about just how much sacrifice was going on in the nation of Israel. Look at the end of Numbers. Numbers 28. I've just, just got our list running up here of all the various sacrifices. So you're like, why did the Levites have to be in the temple all the time? Uh, well, here's some of the things that were going on. So Numbers 28, verses 1 through 8, they told you about the daily offerings. Verses 9 and 10 told you about the 
Sabbath offerings. And then 11 through 15 told you on top of that. So you had the ones you give daily, then the ones you also give on the Sabbath. Then you have the monthly ones that you're required to give on top of those. Then you have the offerings you give at Passover. Well, then you have the offerings that you give at the Feast of Weeks. Then the offering you give at the Feast of Trumpets. Then on the Day of Atonement, there's more offerings that you give on top of all of those. Then there's the offerings and sacrifices that you give at the Feast of Booths. So you, you, and then Numbers 29, 39 says, these you shall offer to the Lord at your appointed feasts. In addition to your vow offerings, your free will offerings, your burnt offerings, your grain offerings, your drink offerings, and your peace offerings. That's a pretty extensive list, right? You thought, man, 10% is easy compared to that. Uh, like imagine, okay, so is it a Sabbath? So I need to bring a turtle dove. Uh, and I also need, is it one lamb or two? You know, uh, how have you been? Let's make it two just in case. Uh, That's a pretty extensive list of what we give to the Lord. But even, even with all of that, those daily and weekly and monthly and then throughout the year sacrifices, what could none of them actually do? Take away sin. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 4 says, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. The sacrifices in the Old Testament, they symbolized the payment of sin, but they did not actually accomplish the payment of sin. And so the priest, the priest still had to give them though. So uh, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 11, and every priest stands daily at his service. And now you know why he was standing daily at his service. A lot of times you're like, well, what was he doing when it wasn't Sunday? Uh, You know, they're standing daily at his service, offering repeatedly. You say, yeah, now I understand repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sin. See this. The system, broken laws, require sacrifices from a broken people, but their sacrifices, these bulls and goats, these lambs, these turtle doves, all of these offerings that you're bringing to the Lord, none of them can take away sins. You've got priests offering over and over every day the same sacrifices for the same sins, for the same sorry people, and none of them take away sin. So does it mean that the law failed? That the law and the sacrificial system are a failure. No, because the law and the sacrificial system wasn't intended to take away our sin by those, the blood of those animals. They were preparing us for the true sacrifice that was to come for a lamb who wasn't a lamb. That's what they were preparing us for. So the people of God had actually been waiting on the lamb of God, waiting on God's lamb to deal with the problem that they knew there's no way that killing a dove is going to replace the fact that i have been living a sinful life so if you look like for example isaiah 53 these passages that we know all about well this is jesus suffering this is describing his suffering right we know so when it gets near easter we're reading these things like man jesus really suffered but it's not he's not just suffering for suffering's sake he's suffering and bleeding as the lamb of God that is slain for the people. So all the way back, uh, Isaiah 53, verses 4 through 6. Surely, and, and picture this in sacrificial language. If you, you, it's hard for us to picture a life of sacrifice, but if you're living Numbers 28 on a daily and weekly and monthly basis, the sacrifice is really what's going on in your head all the time. 
Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. You jump down to verse 10 through 12. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many and he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death, was numbered among the transgressors, though he wasn't one. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. So here's the work of Jesus, right? Spoken of in very sacrificial language, pierced, crushed, wounded, iniquity laid on him, an offering for guilt, making us righteous. All the things that we've been told the blood of sheep and goats cannot do, bearing iniquity, bearing, what's the last thing it says? Bearing our what? Bearing our sin. When you're reading Isaiah 53, I mean, that could be, that could be a sermon in the early church, right? If you were just reading Isaiah 53 and you didn't know where Isaiah 53 was coming from, you would assume this was Peter at Pentecost or something. Describing what Jesus did on the cross. So in describing maybe what Jesus did in terms that the Jews could understand, right? Okay, so let me, let me, okay, guys, here's what's happening. This Jesus was like a sacrifice. And they're all like, oh, and you know, he was bruised, but for us. He was crushed and pierced for his hand. They go, oh, I see the connection. But this wasn't given in the early. This was written 700 years before Jesus ever came. Telling the people what the Lamb of God was going to come and do. So here's the sacrificial system, but understand it's all a shadow of the one who is coming. The, the sacrifice is all like a drama. It's like a play. Preparing us for the real sacrifice that was coming in Jesus Christ. So that John the Baptist, when Jesus walks up, he can say, this is the lamb. Behold, behold, look guys, the lamb of God. And he didn't have to then explain. Now, guys, let me tell you, those sacrifices, they, they never actually took away sin. <gasps> and they're all like, John, tell us more. Tell us more. Who is this lamb? What is he doing? What about all the lambs we killed? He can say, behold, the lamb of God. And people know what he's talking about. Because when you're reading those stories, what happens right after? Right after he says this, no explanation, nothing. Just all of a sudden, his disciples quit following him and start following Jesus. And then they go up to other people and say, hey, this is the one we've been waiting on. Like Andrew goes and gets Peter and say, hey, this is the Christ, the Messiah, this is him. Now, what does he know? This is the Lamb of God. 
all of that showing they had an ex. They never thought that the that the sacrificial systems took away their sin. It's not like they're like John's like guys. God's given us a new dispensation of grace here. There's a new way that you're saved, and it's it's like look here's the Lamb of God that we've been waiting on, that all of those things were pointing to. This is that sacrifice for sin. And this is the one that actually cleanses us. So that 1 John chapter 1, verse 7 can say, But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, as opposed to the blood of bulls and goats, as opposed to all those sacrifices offered daily that couldn't do anything. It is the blood of Jesus, his son, that cleanses us from what? From all our sins. Cleanses us from all sin. Every bit of it. I mean, the blood of bulls and goats can't take away one. The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses you from all of your sin. And it doesn't even say all the sin that you did or all the sin that you're going to do. It just says all sin, all of it. Well, what about, yes, all of it. But what about that thing that, yeah, all of it. But surely this is too great. No, it's not all of it. If your sin falls outside of the word all, you might have a problem. Right? But as long as your sin falls inside the word all, you're okay. Well, guess what? It's going to fall inside the word all. That's the whole point of the great value of Jesus' sacrifice because Jesus is that perfect sacrifice. So that Hebrews chapter 10, right after telling us the, bull, the blood of bulls and goats can't do this, this priest is offering this all the time. Now compare that to the offering of Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 12 through 14. So the bulls and goats can't do anything. The high priests are having to give it all the time. They're worn out. It's not even accomplishing anything, right? It's just trusting in shadows, trusting in shadows. Uh, Verse 12. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins. So daily, monthly, daily, weekly, monthly, during feasts, and then this feast, and that feast, and that feast, and then on top, these other things as well. The sacrifices we saw in Numbers 28, he says Jesus offered a single sacrifice for sins and then sat down at the right hand of God, waiting for that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being made holy. Think about how amazing that would be to a people who were used to continual sacrifice. Think about how amazing this would be to the, to the people. This is why he's telling, look, there are multiple reasons not to go back to the temple here. As he's writing to the Hebrews, don't go back. One, the temple is about to be destroyed and you do not want to be there. Uh, the other thing is what? Is that those sacrifices are all pointing to this great sacrifice. This sacrifice that perfected for all time those who trusted in him i mean we already saw how many sacrifices how many offerings were required of the people but sometimes i i I think those stories we hear stories of blood and we'll read about it in the old testament we'll say sprinkling blood on the altar and we go wow that's kind of messy that's probably not fun but i don't think we get just how bloody The sacrificial system was. We don't understand the sheer volume, how constant and numerous the sacrifices were to be amazed when Hebrews says with one sacrifice, he did it all. 
for all time for all people. Let me give you the example. Let's talk about one of those days. Let's talk about the Passover, one day of the year. By Jesus' day, it was estimated that about a million Jews were coming during the Passover. During that, those nights that they offered on Passover, that night that they killed the lambs and they slaughtered their sacrifice, on that one night in the temple, they would kill approximately 250,000 lambs. One night in a two-hour period. Because they had to do it at twilight. They had, a, they had a period. The Jewish people were growing as God promised that they would do. But growing people meant growing sin, which meant growing sacrifices. So 250,000 lambs in one night. It was so many that they had to bring in all. They had to bring in 600 priests who had to average two lambs a minute to get it done in the amount of time they had to get it done. Now, they wanted to sit down, but couldn't. And that's just... One day for the sins of the people for one year. One people for one day. That's how many lambs. And yet in Christ, his sacrifice is so perfect that his one sacrifice actually pays for their sin and not just their sins for that one day. So we have to get together and sacrifice him again and again and again That one sacrifice on that one day took away their sins, not for just that day, but all their sins. And not just for the Jewish people, but for the sins of the world. Imagine if there are 250,000 lambs slain just for the Jews. Imagine how many lambs would have been slain in the temple if it was for all the people in the world. And yet Christ, by his one sacrifice, makes righteous, makes holy a people. That's that's why John can look out and with glory say, behold the lamb. And that's what I want us to do today. I want you and I, I want us, when you get done with worship today and you go home, I want us to behold the lamb, to see what it is that is so glorious about Christ. Here, finally, the lamb that takes away your sin. So I'd tell us all, look at that lamb today. Look to Jesus and see his glory. Your sins had killed you. And we're sucking you further into the grave. Jesus came to save you from those sins. He is your savior. Think of the, I mean, if we're to be honest with our lives, think of the mountains of goats and bulls, the rivers of blood that your sin would require. And yet Christ's sacrifice is able to do what those other sacrifices could not do. He took away your sin. Took it away. How? By becoming the sacrifice himself. By becoming the lamb. The truth is, the reason that the blood of bulls and goats can't take away your sin is because you deserve to die. You didn't. I did. We deserve to be struck dead the minute we sinned against the God who made us. 
and God would have been righteous and just and the angels would have praised him for doing it because he made us, he created us, he blessed us with life and all the good things we have and I don't care how horrible your life has been or all the struggles you've had, that's better than not having anything ever. And he made you, he gave you the breath of life, you existed and what did you do? You rebelled. You saw your creator. He taught you about himself. He taught you about his wonders, his glory. He filled a world that would sing about him as you walked through the woods and as you drove down the streets, a world that screams glory at night. When when all the lights are out, there are stars singing glory to him, a moon that transverses the sky singing glory for 30 days and coming back again. All of it to show us the glory of our God. And what do we do? We sin. We rebel. That's why it's not bulls and goats that needed to die. The only thing that was going to pay for your sin is either you or Jesus. That's the question that the Bible lays out. That's the reality. That's what we deserve. And 250,000 sheep can't undo that reality. That debt but one Lamb of God can. And that's what's so amazing. We're, we're about to sit around a table together. And when we do, when we take the Lord's Supper, we will not offer up a lamb, but we will remember one. We'll remember the lamb that was slain in our place the body broken that should have been ours, the blood spilled that should have been ours, yet a body broken to give us life, blood spilled to bring us into a new covenant. So when we take and we eat, church, behold the Lamb who took away your sin. Let's pray. Father, I think sometimes, God, our sin is not as serious as it should be. Father, some of that is that it simply can't be for fallen creatures like us. We can never truly understand the magnitude of our sin, your holiness. Some of it is because of the blessed life that we live in Christ, that we have put on the new. We have died to the old. But Father, may we never forget just the weightiness of our sin because it is the weightiness of our sin, Father, that teaches us the glory of our Christ, of our Savior. If our sin is not great, then we do not need a great Savior. But if our sin has eternally bound us, has chained us, has killed us, and we are hopeless, then we are crying out, send the Lamb. And every time the Jewish people would have slaughtered those lambs, there would have been 250,000 cries on that night, send the lamb, send the lamb. And to think that one Passover night, the lamb did come and he was slain outside the city, crossing over a brook that carried the blood from the temple down through the city. 
a brook that would be stained red by the blood of all the lambs and goats and that he was pointing to. And that he would go, Father, and make that sacrifice once for all. The just for the unjust. Taking away our sin. We thank you for that Christ. And we remember him and we wait. Knowing that he will come back in honor and glory with a kingdom and as king. It's in Christ's name that we pray today. Jesus is Lord. Amen.